Chufes is the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigations and projects editor for BuzzFeed News in New York, and he has some strong views on how journalists should approach interviewing. You're about to hear his tips on approaching interview subjects to draw out gripping stories. Mark has been sued by Donald Trump's personal lawyer. He ultimately dropped the suit, but you know Mark will have some tales to share. Mark is joined by BuzzFeed Australia political editor, Alice Workman, sharing her own experiences interviewing politicians and podcasting from Canberra. I'm Claire Fletcher at the Walkley Foundation, and you're listening to a special edition of Walkley Talks, Conversations from Storyology, our 2018 Journalism Festival. I'd like to just say a little bit about BuzzFeed before I begin, because a lot of people don't realize what it is. BuzzFeed News is part of a large news and entertainment company. I don't know whether you folks know this, but the largest page on Facebook is a page run by BuzzFeed. It's called Tasty, and it's our cooking page. So we do everything from investigative reporting to recipes to, of course, cat videos and lists, and now increasingly to feature uh, films, to uh, uh, a series on various uh, platforms such as Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. Journalistically, we have about 300, that might be slightly outdated because uh, it's a couple of months old, about 300 journalists worldwide. And we have, and I think this is somewhat unique, buzz feeds that are of, by, and for different countries. So of course we have BuzzFeed Australia, and it is not, as all the BuzzFeeds are not, some sort of you know, outgrowth of the US. It does its own content for you without regard to us, and our, our editor-in-chief is very clear that BuzzFeed Australia is not a foreign bureau for the United States, and that is true for Brazil, India, Japan, the UK, Germany, all of the different BuzzFeeds around the world. And our stories have made a real impact. You know, they've freed many people from prison, gotten other people indicted, and changed many laws. And I'm quite proud of that. On my team, we do investigative reporting. Because we're a global news organization, we're more and more looking for global stories. So one of our biggest stories last year was about how the United Kingdom and the United States turned a blind eye to deaths that were probably Russian assassinations on their soil. We've done things on corruption in tennis, Bulgarian arms traffickers, international money laundering, you name it, we've done it. So if you have an international story or a tip, come talk with me. In an interview, what is the most important task? Getting them to talk. An interview is not a list of questions. An interview is simply a human interaction, an interaction in which you must bring all the things you bring to any other human interaction, your integrity first and foremost, but also your wit and your charm in the service of getting them to talk. Because unless they talk, they won't tell you anything. So it is not about you. It's not about your questions. It's about them. And that brings us to what the first person suggested, which is to, if possible, and sometimes it's not possible, but if possible, to know everything you possibly can about a source before you meet them. Is she an ex-spouse? Is he a disgruntled employee? Is she someone who was wronged, or is she actually the perpetrator? I sometimes do things like go onto Google Maps and just see their house, because their house can tell you a lot about them. 
Sometimes I'll actually show up to their office or their house. Let's say I'm going to do a door knock because the person hasn't spoken to me. I'll show up there a couple hours early and just kind of look at the place and try to think about what sort of person would live in a place with that kind of decor or that kind of area, whatever. I'll do everything from that to, of course, all the things you would normally do. Learn everything about their past jobs. Try to talk to people who have some insight into what makes them tick. Because, of course, to get them to talk, the most important thing is what motivation might they have to talk. Is it revenge, which is one of the most powerful and best motivations for people to talk? Sometimes, believe it or not, even in our fallen world, there are people who want to do the right thing. So you need to understand those motivations to the best of your ability, okay? And oftentimes, and we'll get to this, you, you, you can't necessarily know all of those motivations. So some overall guidelines. The most important thing is to be honest. It is true, it is absolutely true that you can trick a source. You know, it's really not that difficult. But then that source will be a source only once. And you will not feel good about how you got that story. So bring your integrity, bring your honesty. Identify yourself as a reporter. Now, I know some people do undercover reporting, and that's great in certain circumstances, but unless you have made a careful and considered decision that the only way to get the story is to go undercover, identify yourself as a reporter. Protect your sources. This has never been more important, especially in my country, where leak investigations ramped up under President Obama and are continuing apace under President Trump. People can actually go to prison for many years for talking with you. So think about your digital security. Learn about your digital security. Keep up to date. I almost never communicate via email and, God forbid, Slack. I like to communicate via signal with disappearing messages so that if we're hacked or something else happens, literally there's no trace of having conversations. Think hard about how far you're willing to go to protect a source. We all want to believe that we will go to prison to protect a source, but many of us have other responsibilities. You might have small children. You might be a single parent with small children. Are you really ready to go to prison to protect your source? Think that through and be honest with your source about how far should the government issue you a subpoena you're willing to go to protect them. And then finally, I find that threats do sometimes work. There are times when you can be very, very tough with a source, but they rarely work. Because at the end of the day, we have no power. We do not have the power of subpoena. We have the power of charm and persuasion, but very, very little else. So I think it is better to be polite. There are some basic types of interview. Don't worry. I am not going to go through all of these at this ungodly hour. I'm just going to choose one, and then we can have a conversation. Vulnerable sources, people who are very poor, people who are very uneducated, who, who may not be able to read. There's all kinds of very vulnerable people, and they require a certain approach. The exact opposite, of course, is the powerful person, the corporate lawyer, the politician, the doctor, what have you. What I'm going to talk about is the source who has key information, perhaps one of the very, very few sources 
who knows what you need to bring that story home. A source who you don't know what they have or maybe really even who they are. You might be on deadline and you've got a name and you've got to call or show up at that person's house right now. And finally, the confrontational interview. So what we're going to talk about is when you know a person has information. And here I think, again, the most important thing you can possibly do is to figure out their motives, and we've already talked about that. And if a person is in a specialized profession like a doctor or a scientist, or if they are very ideologically driven, then word your questions in a way that align with their worldview, their who they are. So, you know, I was once doing a story California is the largest state in the union and probably the most influential state. It gave us Hollywood, it gave us freeways, it gave us Silicon Valley. It also had a referendum on whether same-sex marriage should be legal. And I did a story that ended up being one of the more significant stories of that campaign. And for it, I had to talk to people who were for same-sex marriage and those who were against it. And in general, when I spoke to people who were for it, I would talk about same-sex marriage. And in general, when I spoke with people who opposed it, I would talk about traditional marriage. And the reason is very simple. You want to speak in their language so that they feel that they can actually interact with you. I always feel, especially, almost always, the person with the information will be a, somewhat of a powerful or sophisticated source. There's very, very few people that have really critical inside information who are vulnerable, poor, uneducated, illiterate people. Sometimes that happens, absolutely, but usually not. Usually they have some form of sophistication to be in the room or to have access to the inside stuff. So I often like to enlist people on my quest, right, to kind of get them excited about the fact that you are putting together this story. And I often show them what I know. And something that I find works really well is to bring what I call a conversation piece. It doesn't have to be something special. Sometimes I've drawn them, like, two minutes before the interview on a piece of paper. It can just be a graph that shows some spike in something that intimates at a larger story. It can be a deposition that you've obtained from a lawyer. It can be an email chain that sort of speaks to what you're talking about. Bring something. For one thing, if they don't, if they're reluctant to talk, you can say, well, just take a look at this. And then suddenly they're looking at it and they're engaging and it's harder for them to not talk. And also it shows them that you're competent that you've done your homework, that you know what you're talking about, that they should, in fact, entrust their information to you. Very important is to think about alternatives. Sometimes they are not going to give you a document because giving you a document is literally breaking the law, and they just will not do that. Is there some way you can see the document? Can you just read the document? Without, you know, they can be right by you. You can hand them your telephone. You can say, I am not going to take notes. You can see I have no pen in my hand. Here's my phone. I'm not taking pictures with it. Let me just read it. That has worked. Even in this climate, that has worked. And then finally, this is most important when you're asking for documents, word your question in such a way that no is not a possible answer. Because once a person has made a decision, has said no, 
Now it's not just that you have to persuade them to yes. You have to move them all the way back from no to at least neutral where they're considering it again. And that is very, very hard. So don't say, may I have the document? Say, how might I get that document? No is not an answer to the second question. Well, I have a copy, <laughs> you know, and you go from there. So that gives you some indication as to how I think about interviews. And now I'm happy to have Alice Grillman, and of course, to take any questions um, from you. And again, thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. I was nearly afraid that Mark wouldn't be here today because he went on a misadventure in Queensland to go uh, initially snorkeling, but you ended up scuba diving, but you ended up snorkeling. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Now, how is that as an opening interview question? Very softball, very conversational. Is that how you would approach? Get me talking. To get exactly. someone talking? Exactly. Right. Talk, talk about anything. I remember once I, I was trying to interview this corrupt doctor who had stolen millions of dollars from Medicare. And I knocked on her front door and her husband said she wasn't there. And I, I don't know, I came back three or four times. And one time again, the husband answered the door and said she was at work. And I, of course, didn't know where she worked. But I said... Oh, that's right. I've, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the clinic where she works. Didn't fly. He was too smart. So I staked her out, followed her to her <laughs> clinic, knocked on the door, and to my total surprise, she agreed to meet with me in a patient room where, you know, you, I, so I sat down on that kind of bed thing, you know, as if I were, but she walked in, and the first thing she said is, why are you harassing me? You don't know anything about me. And so I said, well, tell me, you know, and she started talking about her marriage and skiing and, you know, all of this stuff. And I was just really wanting to get through that part so I could get to my questions. But it was the most riveting thing anyone has ever said to me. And I listened with that intensity. My alternative approach to interviewing you was to maybe go in with a hardball question, such as... No, don't do that. No, that's, that's not no, a good interview no, technique? No, what never. if it's someone that you don't think you have a lot of time with, you, they're a powerful source that you maybe it's a rare occurrence that you can get near them and you've only got one question that you really want them to answer? Uh, there, there are times when actually entering with a hard question is, is great. And sometimes it can be a wonderful icebreaker because, like, they're not stupid if they're powerful. They know why you're there, right? And so one thing you can do is you can ask a really, really hard question, a really tough, tough question. But you don't have to ask it like you're the prosecutor because you're not the prosecutor. Your point is to get them to engage. In my very first journalism job, I was a little tiny gay and lesbian news weekly in the city of Chicago back way before there was an internet. There was this woman who worked with me, sort of a deputy editor, who had worked for the phone company. And she would answer questions when people called to complain about their phone bill. And what she was taught at the phone company was to have a voice with a smile. And I actually think about that a lot when I ask tough questions. This, this Medicare doctor, for example, one of the questions I had to ask is, have you stolen millions of dollars from Medicare? And I could have said, now, have you stolen millions of dollars from Medicare? But instead, I said, you know, the worst possible way that you could look at this, the most cynical, tough way, is did you steal millions of dollars from Medicare? 
That's the same question. It's a tough question. But it doesn't sort of say, I've already made up my mind. You can't convince me of anything else. I'm just here to stick it to you, which is how many powerful people think about the media. So yes, I think it's a great idea to start with a tough question, but maybe not necessarily in a confrontational, hostile, I've got you kind of a way. So for example, have you seen the Donald Trump pay tape? I won't reveal my sources. Um, no, I have not seen the Donald Trump P tape, and I don't believe any other journalist has seen it, or I think we would all have seen it by now. One of the things that you talked about in terms of getting information out of people was you talked about the same-sex marriage story that you were writing. Yes. And you uh, revealed to us in confidence in a BuzzFeed meeting last week that one of the ways you do it is by researching people yes. and catering your questions and the, the way that you approach people in terms of what you know about them and who they are. Correct. And would you mind sharing the, the, the same-sex marriage example that you have of that? Well, it's sort of what I talked about there. So this was a story about, it turned out that for the, for the, for the conservative side, for those who opposed same-sex marriage, the lion's share, something like, I, I'm not going to get the, the figure right because it's many years ago, but something like 80% of all the money that had been raised for that very expensive initiative. Remember, California alone has something like 35 million people, a tenth of the United States population. If it were a country, its economy would be the sixth largest economy in the world. It's a massive state. It's very expensive to hold a statewide referendum. And something like 80% of the money for this very expensive referendum came from the Mormons. And because we still have some small, ever-narrowing modicum of transparency in my country, you can find out who gave how much money to above a certain amount, like above $100 or something, to the campaign. And through my sources, some of whom were quite obsessive and had literally gone through every single name, and then because the Mormon community is relatively small, like figured out who was Mormon, I had sort of a cheat sheet. So I would call a variety of these donors, and at that time I worked at the Wall Street Journal, which was a huge help because the Wall Street Journal is considered a conservative newspaper. I would say, hello, I'm Mark Schuff from the Wall Street Journal. I'm writing a story about traditional marriage, and I'm noticed through public records that you donated to preserve traditional marriage, and I'd like to understand what your motivations might be. You know, do, do you have some sort of personal stake in this? Does it come from your deep religious beliefs? What have you? And everything about that is true, and everything about that is honest, and everything about that is in the language and worldview of the people that I am speaking with. And so it doesn't say to them, I don't want to have a conversation with this person. It opens the door to a conversation about it. And I learned a lot of things. Many things are, by the way, very interesting, including that the different religious groups hated one another, um, you know, because they had doctrinal differences. The born-again Christians didn't think that the Mormons were actually Christians and yada, 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 yada. But also, I learned that the Mormons, for example, had made a very concerted effort. They had a special post office box to which they wanted people to mail checks. They had spoken about this from the pulpit. It was a, an actual organized, concerted effort to raise money. And I learned most of that through these interviews with donors. And I think part of the reason I was able to have those in-depth conversations is I spoke their language.
speaking their language and I think trust is another big way to get people to open up to you in an interview. Are there any techniques that you use to be able to get a source to believe that you're trustworthy? Yeah, I tell them the truth, which is that, look, what I write might not be a love letter. It might not be the story you would write. But what I can tell you is I will do my best to put forth your point of view. And, and in that same-sex marriage story, that traditional marriage story, I did. There is no question that the position of the Mormons, the Roman Catholics, the uh, Protestants, they are all outlined in that story. And most importantly, that you will know what is in that story before it is published so that you have a chance to add or give any comment or correct anything that might be wrong. And this is particularly important when you're writing about a person or an organization that, whose feet you are holding to the fire. They have a right to be angry at your coverage. They have a right to feel you know, disappointed, whatever, but they do not and cannot ever feel surprised about what they read or hear or see in your story. They need to know in advance what you're going to say about them, especially if you're going to call them a perpetrator or say they've done some sort of wrongdoing so that they have a chance to say whatever they want. And it's not checking a box. Sometimes only the accused can prove they are innocent. You're not a prosecutor. You are a journalist. You are open to anything anybody has to say. It doesn't mean you accept it on face value. You're going to investigate it and interrogate it and be rigorous, but you are open to it. And you are open to the fact that your thesis that you've been working based on is wrong. Is that how you approach most of your stories, that you start thinking, I have a thesis or I've heard a rumor or I have an idea of, of what I think this story is. Let me throw as many stones at it to try and disprove it before I... Yes. If you can't kill your story, it's probably a good story. I'm interested to know where the line for you is in terms of letting sources know exactly what's in the copy before you publish. Do you, I mean, are you reading out no. paragraphs? So we never give a draft of a story out, ever. And the reason for that is, you know, there's a lot of reasons. One, the story might change, and you don't want various versions of the story circulating. Second of all, you must remember that even in asking questions, you can libel someone. What is the definition of libel? If I say to Alice, Alice, you are a scumbag, I have not defamed Alice because I said it directly to Alice. But if I say, Simon, Alice is a scumbag, I have now defamed Alice, right? So until a story has been completely fact-checked and gone through the lawyers, which by definition it hasn't until it's been published, you don't send out a draft because you might inadvertently libel someone. And also, a smart libel lawyer will take that draft that you sent to someone, compare and contrast to the one that is published, and absolutely rake you over the coals on the stand for every last little tiny difference between them. So you don't ever send out a draft of a story. What you do is you either tell people, in general, what you plan based on your reporting so far, never what you will publish, but what you plan to publish based on your reporting so far, or you, if they won't speak to you, you write them what I call a no surprises letter so that they can't be surprised. And you bullet point, sometimes these run to 10,000 words if it's a big investigation, right? You've been researching them for a year, 
You better have at least 10,000 words of stuff you want to ask them. And you put it all down. And you include anybody who's on the record, you include their name so that if it's about a company, you know, we did a huge series on America's largest psychiatric hospital company. And so what happens if one of our sources had embezzled from the company? I'd really, really like to know that before we go into print. So you want to let them know as much as you know, as much as you can tell them without revealing your sources who have asked you to be off the record and to give them a full and fair opportunity to respond. Now, this is about investigative reporting. On deadline reporting, you often have to do this much more quickly. And sometimes you cannot do it at all. But if you're really going to say somebody did something wrong, you have to make every effort to get in touch with them and then every effort to make sure they understand what this story is going to say. You mentioned there about people who talk to you either on background or off the record or they're, they're willing to, to give quotes to you but anonymously. How do you deal with those type of interviews? Do you, do you have a strategy to dealing with people who say, look, I'm going to tell you this but you didn't hear it from me or you can't use my name? Yeah, I mean, first of all, we always try to get them to use their name, right? Of course we want that. That, is, that makes the story stronger and there are sometimes I have no patience for it. You know, it's some flack or something, and they just, you know, they're slightly worried that they might somehow get slightly slapped on their wrist. And it's like, you know, and I have little patience for that. Um, and remember, you're the one who must agree to off the record. If someone starts talking with you and they say, actually, I have the PTA, but no, 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 don't have that on the record. If they have to ask that before, right? So if they want something ex post facto off the record, you can decide you want to grant it, but you don't have to. But if you have made an agreement, then of course you must follow that agreement. In, in the United States, it's, it's actually contract law and has been decided at the Supreme Court, but also just ethically, you, if you make an agreement, you have to do it. And look, especially now, especially in national security reporting, you're not going to get very many sources on the record. You're just, I mean, look, somebody who works at the NSA or the CIA or the FBI or what have you, they're not going to risk going to prison by giving you their name. And so in those sorts of situations, you have to tell as much as you can without revealing that source, maybe a senior law enforcement official or a serving intelligence official or something, if they're comfortable with that, and they might not be because there might only be two serving intelligence officials who know what you're talking about, but there might be, say, 10 congressional staffers who also have that information, right? So then you're left with just a source with knowledge of the matter. I've been dealing with people a lot lately who don't usually talk to the media, and it's kind of mm -hmm. counter to their, their normal instinct to talk to the media. And I've been going in knowing, oh, okay, well, I know that this person knows X, Y, Z. But then when I get in front of them or I get them on the phone, I can't get that information out of them because they're not used to dealing with the media. Do you have any tips about how to get people to open up? What, when you say they're not used to dealing with the media, what do you mean? Do you mean that they literally have never dealt with They've the never media? dealt with the media before. And, and they're and, sophisticated and... people or they're – give me an example. So recently I, I wrote a story about people who worked in a politician's office who were making complaints oh, and allegations right. about her and they instinctively don't deal with the media right. and don't want to talk to the media but I decided to break that rule in this instance right. but work in a job where they know so much information and they're not allowed to talk about it and I had to get bits out of them right. but it was hard to get them to open up. So first of all, you need to be patient. 
a lot of you are probably beat reporters and you think, how on earth can I do something like this, right? You know, it's not, you know, this kind of reporting that this ridiculous idiot from New York is talking about. It's just, he's so out of touch, right? You know, he's talking about investigations that take a year and, you know, whatever. Even on a beat, you can keep going back to people. You can be patient and you can think about, okay, they have, there's a great story there. I'm not going to get it this week. I may not get it this month. I may not get it for three or four months. But if I keep going back to that person, say to that person something like, listen, I know you don't talk to the media. Why don't we just meet? I'm happy to go to whatever cafe you'd like. And I promise to not ask you a single question. You can ask me anything you want to know. Who I am, what I've done before, what is the process by which I work, what kinds of questions am I going to ask? How am I going to corroborate that? What's the editorial process? Like, just say, make a promise. I will not ask you any questions. This is your chance to interrogate me. And if, after doing that, you'd like to speak with me, fantastic. I'll be thrilled and over the moon. But if you decide you don't want to, no hard feelings, this is the deal. It is amazing how disarming that is. Because... Let's face it, especially today, everybody comes out the media with a certain amount of cynicism and distrust in anything you can do to disarm that distrust is the way to go. Please join me in thanking Mark for giving up his time this morning. to the Walkley Talks podcast. If you dig it, sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe for all our announcements, stories and updates. If you liked this episode, rate and follow us on your favourite podcast app. Mark Schuf's visit to Storyology was made possible thanks to BuzzFeed News. This podcast was produced for the Walkley Foundation at the 2SER Studios in Sydney, Australia. Catch you next time. Bye.